Well, good morning to you all. Good to see you. Just before we turn to the Word of God, just a, a brief thank you to the, the church family here for their kindness um, and fellowship to us as a family uh, over a number of years, and particularly over the last few weeks. It's been greatly uh, appreciated. If you have a Bible with you, could you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 18 through to 35. This is the Word of God. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John called two of his disciples to him and sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet... This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But... The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he is a demon." The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Salvation is not simply by faith. Now, before a SWAT team of elders descend from the balconies and take me out, please bear with me. In chapter 7 and 8 of, John, or of Luke's gospel, the subject of salvation is very much to the fore. The good Dr. Luke records numerous different ways in which Christ rescues, saves people. Last week, another good doctor reminded us in the first part of the chapter, how Christ had saved from disease and saved even from death. 
And in the coming weeks, we're going to see other aspects of this salvation in these chapters. As Christ displays the power to rescue from a guilty past, an overwhelming storm from demons, and again from death. But in the first verses of this chapter 1 to 17 that we looked at last week, Christ healed a centurion's servant and he raised a son from the dead. And we learned that salvation is entirely by grace. It's never based on our own worthiness or our own abilities. We also learned that salvation is indeed by faith. So when we come to the verses that we've just read, at first glance, they can seem actually to have very little to do with the subject of salvation. In 17 through to 23, we're told of the greatest man who had ever lived up until that point, John the Baptist, and he questions the identity of Christ. And then in the second half of the section, Jesus then questions the crowds about including things like John's identity. So what has all this got to do with the vitally important question of salvation? Well, salvation is not simply by faith alone. It is where, or more precisely, in whom that faith is placed that is key to salvation. Salvation is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this section that we're looking at this morning deals with people who are struggling with the reality of who Jesus is. We see John has false expectation of this salvation. Now, John's a very impressive character, colorful, humble, plain-spoken preacher who, like some preachers, had a less than conventional taste in clothing and diet. But he was a man sent from God. He was a prophet. His coming had been foretold over seven centuries before by another prophet, Isaiah, who would say of him that he would be a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was the first prophet since Malachi 400 years ago who had encountered Israel. His role was to proclaim that the long-expected Messiah was just about to come. God's anointed king was on the way. Salvation himself was coming. And John spent the early stages of his ministry living and preaching in the wilderness, far away from the religious establishment. And he tells everyone from the man in the street to the religious elite, that the Lord is coming and they must be ready because they're not ready to meet him. They needed to turn away from their sin. And those who listened to John and repented of their sin were baptized then in the Jordan as a symbol of that repentance. And John the Baptist boldly proclaimed that the coming Christ was going to bless and to judge. He says in Luke 3 and 16, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it seems that John's expectation was that the coming of Christ, that Christ was about to come and that he would also bring judgment, that this would be one and the same event. 
Again, in Luke chapter 3, verse 9, he says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. One day John saw Jesus standing on the banks of the Jordan. And he cried those tremendous words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John saw Jesus. He spoke with him. He grasped him in his hands as he baptized him in the Jordan. Messiah had come. Salvation had arrived. Surely now the wrongs of the world will be righted. Occupying armies will be defeated. Justice and mercy will reign supreme. But shortly afterwards, the uncompromising John challenged King Herod about some moral choices that he was making, and Herod tossed John in prison for his troubles. And John waited. Not all the challenges of prison life, I'm sure, were new to John. He'd experienced isolation, discomfort, and poor food before. But now he faced a much, much bigger problem. Evil was still winning. Evil was unjudged. And wasn't the Messiah, according to Isaiah, to proclaim liberty to the captives? And he's in prison. So he waited. And he waited. But the deliverance he hoped for, maybe prayed for, it never came. Herod continued his immoral relationships, his drunken parties, the occupying forces in Israel stayed in place. And so in verse 18, his disciples tell him about the things that the Lord has been doing, maybe very particularly the things in the previous verse, verses, healing the servant, bringing to life a son. We're not told how John reacted initially to that news. It can be hard, can't it, to hear of others being blessed when, when you continue on in suffering. But it is likely that John was delighted that the Lord was doing these things, delighted that he was changing the lives of individuals. But what about the big issues? What about corrupt governments, evil dictators? Salvation of individuals, perhaps, but savior of the world, not so sure. And of course, what happens when things get tough? when things do not work out in life according to our expectations, when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Well, it can lead to discouragement and to doubt, can't it? And John wonders, is Jesus really who John had believed him to be? Should John now deconstruct his faith and look elsewhere for salvation? So John asks a rather blunt question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for someone else? Are you really who I thought you were, Jesus? It's a crucial question. Is Jesus Christ who he claimed to be? How does Christ respond to John's doubt? How does Christ respond to doubt in the life of one of his own? 
do notice a few things that the Lord didn't do. He didn't tell John all the answers. He didn't lay out in detail God's plan for all the ages or God's plan for all of John's life. Nor did the Lord deny that one day he would indeed deal with sin and evil completely. I think it's very notable that the Lord didn't dismiss John. In fact, later on in the chapter, he commends him publicly. Most helpfully, the Lord didn't give John a simple yes or no answer. Because what good was that? Especially if Jesus was a fraud. Instead, Christ sets about providing John with evidence as to the reality of who he is. And he does it in two parts. First of all, by his actions. Before, before the Lord says anything, we're told in verse 21, in that hour, the hour of questioning, in that hour, he healed many people. And notably, we're told he gave sight to the blind as Christ seeks also to bring better vision to John. And these healings that Christ performs in verse 21, they're not mere power plays on the part of Christ to convince people as to his deity. They're demonstrations of the very character of God in a world that is seemingly irreversibly damaged by sin. This is God acting in his care and love and compassion, reversing the effects of sin. Others in history, albeit temporarily and partially, had tried to bring about justice, overthrow occupiers, install new governments. But this was real power in action. Nobody in the history of the world had ever done these things in such volume before. You see, the salvation that is in Christ is not only from judgment but ultimately from the crippling, the blinding, the deadening effects of sin on our minds and our bodies. He alone can reverse the irreversible. His miracles are like little thumbnail sketches of a time that was yet to come, a, John, a time that John rightly expected to come. He just had got the timings wrong. John didn't realize that before Messiah would judge he would preach good news. He hadn't realized that before Messiah would judge and judge sin, he would personally bear it himself on a cross. Christ then emphasizes the meaning of his actions with words in verse 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. What's the Lord doing? He's directing John to the Word of God, the promises of God, to bolster John's faith. The promises of the coming Messiah, many found, for example, in the book of Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
John, you may not understand it all now. My plans have not yet been fully executed. But look at the evidence. The fulfillment of what has been prophesied. If I have fulfilled that in that part of the promise, I will fulfill all of the promises. You know, as we look at John and this issue of his expectations of of salvation when it came, and we see his struggle, well, I think there's some little practical things we can draw out for ourselves, little pointers on dealing with the very real issue of doubt. Doubt is a real challenge for everyone, every believer. In fact, every person on planet Earth has doubts about their worldview and life in general, but that's a, that's a different issue altogether. Let's just consider briefly five little pointers that might help us as we perhaps encounter the issue of doubt just from this passage. Very simply, like John, we ought to admit our doubts and bring them to the Lord, not to be embarrassed by them. Don't be afraid to speak to others. It must have been humbling for John the great prophet, to have to tell his disciples of his struggle. Jude 24 tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. And the Lord never asks of us that which he won't do himself. The Lord has mercy. Go to the Word of God. Go back to the basic question, who is Jesus? Consider who he is, consider the work that he did, consider the the prophecies that are in the Old Testament that he fulfills, deal with the evidence. On the basis of the evidence, could Christ really have been a charlatan, or does this all have a ring of truth about it? Also, as we struggle with doubt, it can be helpful to just simply remember things that we have previously seen and heard of the Lord in our lives and in the lives of others. We also need to ensure that we as believers do not have false expectations of salvation. I think many times as believers, perhaps even subconsciously, we think that we ought not to suffer as others do. That, of course, is simply not true. In fact, Christ promised us that in the world we would have tribulation, we would have struggle. We do not have a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to the struggles and pains of life. But we do have the promises of God. That is, grace is sufficient that He can use those trials in our lives for good, that He will never leave us nor forsake us, and that at the end, He guarantees to bring us safely home to Himself. And do note too, as perhaps you struggle with doubt, maybe even this morning, the Lord didn't condemn John. In fact, in verse 28, he says there is none greater than John. Not that the Lord is dismissing doubt as if it's not important, but he is offering help. And I loved in verse 27, as as the Lord quotes from the Old Testament, notice how he identifies John. My messenger. 
when John lost sight of who Christ was, Christ never lost sight of who John was. He's mine. As we move into the second part of our section, Christ now challenges the crowd. John's disciples have left. And having been questioned about his own identity, Christ now questions the crowd about John's identity. They had recently flocked from the cities, from their homes, from their businesses, way out into the wilderness to hear a preacher. It's a lot of trouble to go to just to hear a sermon. Yet there was something deeply compelling about this man, John, and about the message that he preached. And so three times Christ asks the the semi-rhetorical question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? A man blown by the latest opinion, the latest Twitter outrage? No, you know that you went to hear a man of real conviction who spoke consistently and uncompromisingly of the holiness of God. He says, did you go to see a man dressed in, in soft clothing? In other words, a man choosing luxury and ease and image. No, says Christ. You know that the man you went to hear was not a religious fraudster who was seeking to improve his own bank balance and his own well-being at the expense of others. Obviously, these were not the reasons people had gone out into the wilderness. They went to hear a prophet. And Christ says of this prophet in verse 28, of those born of woman, there is none greater than John. Now that's quite a claim when you consider the characters, many great characters of the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses and David and the like. And the Lord is saying until that point in time, there was nobody in terms of their role and the message that they had that was greater than John. As I mentioned earlier, this role that John would have was prophesied by Malachi 400 years earlier. And Christ quotes from Malachi here now in verse 27. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John was God's prophet. Therefore, he was God's mouthpiece to the people. And he also was the very forerunner of Messiah. This was why their consciences had been stirred as they listened to this man preaching, because God himself was speaking to the people. So the big question for them was then, how did they respond to what they heard through John? Because, of course, a stirred conscience is a good thing, but it's of little help, really, if there's no possibility of being saved from the thing that causes our conscience to be disturbed. John's preaching emphasized holiness and sin and getting right with God. And not everyone 
Not everyone likes their conscience, their, their, their God-given spiritual alarm system, if you like. Not everyone likes their conscience being activated. Most right-thinking people would like to know that they are right with God. But most prefer to think they can do that on their own terms. Notice in verse 29 that Christ, as he talks about this, emphasizes that John emphasized the need for baptism as a result of repentance. Not as a way of getting rid of their sin, but as an acknowledgement of their need of personal cleansing. And many people, the tax collectors specifically are mentioned here, a group of people who were particularly aware of their lack of holiness. Well, we're told their response to the message. In verse 29, they declared God just. Or they declared God right. Or as the NIV translates it, they acknowledged that God's way was right. They accepted God's verdict on their lives. And so they confessed their sin, their need of salvation, were baptized. It was people like that who then found it very easy to receive what Jesus said. Because their tired and weary hearts rejoiced to hear the Son of God speak of forgiveness and acceptance with God. Because they freely knew and admitted that they needed those things. Here was God in flesh come not to condemn but to save. He'd come, as he's referred to in verse 34, as the friend of sinners. Not in the sense that he was totally like them and helped them in their sin. That's what the Pharisees meant when they called him a friend of sinners. But rather in that he loved them. He didn't despise them. He didn't push them away. As the friend of sinners, he tells them the truth because he wants to help. His heart is to save them from the guilt and the shame and the power of sin that was ruining their lives and to save them ultimately from the coming judgment. And so in being baptized, the people declared God to be right about their sin. And then in following Christ, they declared God to be right about his son. But somewhat solemnly in verse 29, Christ highlights that others responded very differently to John's message. The Pharisees and the experts in religious law, well, they prided themselves in keeping the law. Unlike the tax collectors or the centurion earlier in the chapter, they were happy to rest on their own perceived goodness. Now, it's not that they believed they were perfect. It's just they believed they were much better than many other people they could think of. They felt sure that God would, would give them a pass. God would be happy that they were sincere and they'd, they, they tried their best. But John had unswervingly insisted that a holy God and a good God simply cannot ignore any sin. 
And the solution was for them to humble themselves and ask God for salvation. But they simply would not accept the message given through John. In the words of verse 29, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Or perhaps a more helpful translation of that is they rejected the counsel of God for themselves. The counsel of God. What grace, what kindness, what love that the God of glory would counsel us personally about our need. What an unmitigated disaster to fail to heed the counsel of God himself. So as the Pharisees didn't think they had any need of repentance, so they had no need of Christ. They had religion, but they didn't have salvation. They were people of faith, but their faith was not and the Son of God. In verses 31 to 34, Christ concludes his challenge with a, with a brief illustration. He likens those who have rejected God's message through John and subsequently Christ himself. Well, he, did, he likens them to children, perhaps denoting that they weren't quite as sophisticated as they thought they were. He said they were like children just playing in the marketplace out in the street, and they were never happy whatever game was played. If an upbeat tune was played, they refused to be happy and dance and join in. If a lament was sung, well, then they refused to be sad. Christ and John the Baptist were very different people, but neither of those men and neither of their messages suited the Pharisees. When John the Baptist spoke of wrath and holiness, they dismissed him as some sort of weird extremist. Even worse, they said that the man who spoke on behalf of God was mad, a demoniac. And then when Christ comes along and he speaks of joy and forgiveness, well, they just dismissed him as being much too lax morally. And worst of all, they judged God incarnate as an overindulgent, drunken collaborator with sinners. They simply could not be pleased with anyone, even God himself. They wanted to make up their own game. They wanted to invent their own rules. As David Gooding says, all they wanted was a God small enough to compromise and pretend that their imperfect keeping of the law was adequate, a salvation small enough for their merits to earn it, and a doctrine of salvation that left the final judgment decidedly uncertain. And so Christ concludes his comments with a little phrase, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It may be a reference to the fact that some people will always justify their actions no matter what evidence is set before them, but, but more likely it is an expression maybe a little like the one that we commonly use, that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Belief 
affects behavior. A person who has real faith, a faith that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, will not remain unaffected and unchanged, as the next section in Luke's gospel will show us. The salvation that is that comes by faith in Christ is life-giving, and it is life-producing, it is life-changing. This Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He will begin to save us from the very flaws in our character and produce something in us that looks a lot less like our old selves and much more like Him. If we're to know salvation from the just judgment of a good and holy God, if we're to know salvation from the seemingly irreversible effects of sin in our lives and ultimately in our world, well, we simply must accept that we need saving. We have to accept the reality of our brokenness and our sinfulness. And then place our trust outside of ourselves, outside of religion, outside of, of reformation, and place it in Christ alone. He is the Son of the living God, the one who has fulfilled scores of Old Testament prophecies. He is the Lamb of God who bore the righteous wrath of God for sin on a cross. He is the risen Christ who has conquered sin and death. He is the ascended Christ who is over all. And he is the coming Christ who will one day fully and finally deal with evil and establish his righteous eternal kingdom. You know, when John the Baptist asked his question from prison, he didn't ask Christ what I think I might have asked. He didn't say, when will you free me from this suffering and, and this disappointment? Or he didn't even say, why me? In his struggle, John asked, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? He simply needed assurance. Assurance that what he had believed about Christ before he was imprisoned was really true. If Jesus Christ really is the Savior that the Old Testament predicts will come, because if the evidence showed that this was true, then this was enough. And somehow, someday, this same Jesus would deal perfectly with all the suffering and the struggle and the sin in both John's life and in the entire universe. He is the one who has come. He is the one who is yet to come. You do not need to look for another. Shall we pray?
Father, we are simply this morning grateful for salvation. A God who will rescue the sinful and the broken. A God who comes to where we are. A God who presents evidence in order that we might believe. Not simply ask to take a leap in the dark. We can turn, and as in John's case, we can look to Old Testament prophecy. Time and time again, see it fulfilled in the life of Christ. We thank you that we have a Savior who does not dismiss us in our doubts, but seeks to give us evidence to assure our hearts that he truly is salvation. And so, Lord, we who do not have the answers to all the questions in life, we do not have the answers to why so many things happen in our lives and the lives of others, but we thank you this morning that we have the answer to the greatest question. Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. Salvation is found in no other name. And so, Lord, we thank you this morning for the one who draws us to himself, the one who saves us, the one who deals, will deal ultimately with all evil and all wrong, the one who will set right everything on a universal and on a personal scale. We thank you for him. Help us to go into this week trusting him, following him, and sharing with others the truth and the wonder of salvation that is found in Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.